Hey, Kingdom Roots listeners, before we jump into the episode that Scott and I have for you this week, we want to make sure that you are aware of a unique opportunity. That's right. Right now, Northern is offering a $50 Amazon gift card to everyone who applies and is accepted for the upcoming fall quarter. Yeah, I'm a student at Northern, and I, this I'll be starting my third year here in a few weeks, and I have loved being a student at Northern. It's been a great opportunity to get connected with great professors and also to develop relationships with other students, and Northern students are some of my favorite people. They're all kinds of fun. We have a great time learning together, and we encourage each other and advocate for one another outside of class Uh, We stay in touch and uh, we get to learn from each other's ministry experiences, which has been really great. So, Scott, why do you think our listeners should think about Northern Seminary for their seminary education? I just finished an amazing week, we call them intensives, with new students at Northern in the Master of Arts in New Testament. And I cannot tell you and describe how great of an experience it was. We I talked too much because my voice is wearing down, and the students talked a lot. The students have become friends. Uh, When we were leaving, I saw a huddle of about six or seven of them with their hands on one another's shoulders, praying for one another. So it's become a spiritual fellowship, an intellectual engagement, and great friendship. And I think that's the very heart of our cohort experience at Northern Seminary, Students in intensives becoming friends and fellow journey people on a journey into learning more about theology, about the Bible, and most especially about themselves and God. That's great. So if you want to take a chance take advantage of this unique chance to get a $50 Amazon gift card after getting accepted for the fall quarter, go to seminary.edu backslash K apply to schedule some time with our admissions team or start your application today. Again, that is seminary.edu backslash K-R-A-P-P-L-Y. And now here is today's Kingdom Root episode. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we have something special to share with all of you. Earlier this month, Dr. Scott McKnight and Dr. Lynn Kohick from Northern Seminary hosted a webinar entitled Giving Voices to Women of the Early Church. We wanted to re-air this content on the podcast to give our listeners an opportunity to hear these two New Testament scholars give voices to the women of the early church. You'll get to hear Scott and Lynn tell the stories of women from the New Testament and the early church, and I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Take a listen now as you hear Scott McKnight and Lynn Kohick talking about women of the early church. I've just read Martha Nussbaum's new book, Citadels of Pride, which is a really stunning book. 
and um, about the various uh, maneuvers and manipulations and systems that men have created over the years um, that marginalize, silence uh, women, and, and, and it becomes structural and systemic so that uh, women experience imposter syndrome uh, more than men because uh, they always wonder if they belong and cannot sometimes accept their giftedness. And I have, I, I know women like this and, it, and it, uh, it's discouraging um, because of their inherited giftedness. So I'm really glad to be with Lynn tonight and I'm gonna pass it over to her uh, and you people can ask questions in the chat and we'll see if we can get to them. But um, Lynn is a world expert on, on these women that are ignored. And so she could probably go on for three or four hours here. But, but we'll uh, only I'm do excited. an hour, right? Because yeah, that's right. We're that's right. We're early to bed, early to rise, people. <laughs> that's right. I saw that from seven to nine. I thought, oh, I won't no make way it I can that make way. that. No, okay. no. Well, thanks. Yeah, Scott, this is just such a great idea for you and I to uh, just have a conversation about uh, what we're really interested in, which is women in the New Testament. Um, I don't know if you, well, I think you do remember uh, when you uh, contacted me probably in 06, I think, something like that, to participate in a book that you and Joe Modica, who's at Eastern University, uh, outside of Philadelphia, would I contribute to a book that you were pulling together called Who Do My Opponents Say That I Am? And you asked me to write on Jesus, King of the Jews. And that was my big breakthrough. And then uh, you continued to ask uh, with the, what was it, the story? I'm trying to get the titles here. Um, asked me to be part of the editorial team, the Story of God series. Um, and then I did a chapter on Philippians in Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not, uh, that, and the apostle Paul in the Christian life, a couple of other works that you did with Joe Modica. And in all of these, you really encourage my voice. And so I love that we're doing this together, giving voices to women of the early church, because, um, personally, you've really done that with me. So, um, Yeah. So I'm excited to get going in that. But you probably have your own story on this. Yeah, I do, a little bit. I mean, I think Joe writes me and he says, do you know who Lynn Kowick is at Wheaton? And you probably know what my answer was. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure. I think I've heard of her name. Um, so it was, you know, Joe, Joe is such a great guy. And, and we've known one another since the mid 80s. Um, and so we've worked together on these books. And he mentioned your name, and I remember your essay. I think, wow, I really like this. Well, I can jump forward to meetings that we've had where I thought to myself, I wish Lynn were listening to me now. Now I got to listen to her. So I've, uh, I'm, I was telling Chris yesterday. We were talking. We've had a really hectic couple of days, and I said, you know, Northern Seminary is a really special place with all the women the gifted women that we have in our classes. I, I just, uh, I was just thinking of Melissa Pillman, who is pastoring in uh, near uh, Wrigley Field. Um, and we have so many gifted women. And now with you and Beth and Ingrid on, um, on the dock, as it were, uh, we're getting more students. 
And I feel like uh, it's a privilege for me to be a part of this uh, renewal of women among evangelicals and in the churches and leadership. And I also think that um, it bodes well for Northern Seminary as we encourage more and more women to join us uh, to learn from our our professors. It's it's fun, and I'm really glad. I was I couldn't believe it when you uh, decided to come as our dean and provost. So I'm really excited. Well, I thought, could I could I manage Scott McKnight? Okay, that's the wrong <laughs> question. Just skip over that one. But yeah. uh, in terms of tonight, you know, one of the things just a couple of weeks ago, I was in a uh, in a service and they're a wonderful pastor it was his actually his first time at the church so it was his inaugural le- uh, lesson and he he just was so sincere it was a great message great um in, in terms of how he had prepared it you could tell the sincerity in his in his voice he was looking at matthew the genealogy and uh in in that um uh passage he um he began to talk about the women in, in that passage. And that's the passage we're going to start with. We're going to start at the beginning of, of the New Testament, genealogy of Matthew, and take a look at that. Because as I was sitting there and he's giving his sermon, he ends up describing uh, the women, all but Mary, mother of Jesus, as uh, sexually compromised, sexually deviant, as prostitutes, as just all... Um, having sorted sexual pasts. And his point was, you know, the Lord works through that and redeems that. So it was a positive thing, but I thought, wait a minute, that's not, that's not who these women are. And then I've been um, going through Christianity Today's podcast, um, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And one of the uh, people, yeah, that's an intense experience, but I highly recommend it. Um, And one, uh, interviewee was talking about one of Mark Driscoll's Christmas sermons, where he taught he it was titled Ho 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 Merry Christmas. Mm-hmm. But by ho, he meant the slang word for prostitute, or you know what I mean. And people kind of got a laugh on that. But I thought, wow, so, you know, it's just throughout every, everywhere, this misunderstanding of who these women are, that are part of Matthew's genealogy, um, you know, and it, and I guess what I, I, I want to talk about each of these women, kind of unpack what their history is. But if you can take one thing away with you, you want to take away the fact that they're all Gentiles. That that's that's the point in all of this, don't you think, Scott? Well, yes, I and and they are they, you know, I mean. We don't know everything about every one of them, and, and I and I agree with that. And okay, I know you're going to get there, but I think it's pretty mean uh, to describe the wife of Uriah as as sexually compromised. I mean, in, at some level, but she was abused and in in, in some level raped, and uh, by the king. And so it's pretty hard to put any blame on her in this story. So I've I've heard this. I've heard this interpretation and it irritates me. All the time I hear it. Right. And and it's by either well-meaning pastors like what I just recently heard or it's pastors who kind of get a laugh. But the bottom line is no girl wants to grow up and be one of these women in the genealogy. You know, nothing said about. 
Abraham, who allows his wife to go off to, with other men, uh, you know, pimps her, if, if you will. Uh, nothing about David, who murders Uriah or has, not directly, but indirectly. I mean, there's some pretty bad sin that happens with these men, and it's not mentioned. But let's talk about Rahab. She's a Canaanite. We're going to talk later, I hope, if we get there, uh, about the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. That's a really important story. The Syrophoenician woman it's the, is um, how Mark describes her. And she is called, Rahab is called a prostitute in James. Um, uh, but Hebrews chapter 11 talks about how she lived by faith. And James talks about how she's righteous. And that is the whole story. She is a righteous woman who protects the, um, the spies in the land and saves her family. Well, it, it's not emphasized that she's a prostitute. In fact, I was thinking that later in Matthew, Matthew 21, Jesus talks about how tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of heaven and others won't. So, you know, the it, we don't know if there were prostitutes among uh, Jesus's followers, but, um, and we will talk about how Mary Magdalene is not a prostitute, was not a prostitute. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the things that's often overlooked is that so many of the uh, sex workers back then were slaves. Th these are not, this is not a like pretty woman <laughs> kind of scenario. The, so many women who were prostitutes back then were slaves, and we know there were a number of slaves in churches. So just kind of the cavalier attitude or the, the labeling of, of women, throwing that label of prostitute around as though they, they are uh, uh, sexually compromised of their own choice. We just don't have that in uh, supported strongly in scripture. Tamar also, I mean, she's Judah, Judah who uh, is her father-in-law, declares that she's more righteous yeah. uh, than he is. That's what the biblical text says, right? The biblical text does not get into how uh, she, in a sense, uh, pushed Judah to follow through with what he said he would do instead of leaving yeah, her. That's right. yeah. Yep. And then we have Ruth. And I mean, she's a Moabite and she's following what her mother-in-law talks about. There's not, she, she doesn't seduce, although I've heard some people say she seduced Boaz. I, I, I just don't, I, she seems to be following the customs of the day. What, what are your thoughts? Well, I think she, um, she she wanted to be connected to a man and she used her skills and put herself in a position uh, that made herself um, let's say um, attractive to to the man I mean I don't I don't think that there's any suggestion of sin in what she did no. I mean we impose on it I mean it's easy to imagine this as an act of seduction, but it's just as easy to imagine that she's there and uh, she wants him to know that that she can be a good woman. So I, I'm not. And he's family. 
right? I mean, that this yeah. is, she's not just going out and around. She knows that this is her kinsman redeemer. Yeah. And he and Boaz praises her. Uh, and I feel like that's the thing that so often is missing is the praise of these women by Judah, um, by scripture about Rahab, and then scripture about Ruth. It's like that's just all swept away rather than the words of scripture actually count. And then we get to Uriah's wife, uh, Bathsheba, who um, the scripture never condemns, never condemns her for washing Um it does condemn David for being where he shouldn't be. He's yep. at home when, when everyone else is, when the king should be out at war. Um, so again, we, and, and it's very clear that Nathan uh, critiques David and David owns it against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. So, I mean, the scripture never casts her in a bad light and yet we do. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, Lynn, you've been really good at this, at, at saying you know, you people are, give this woman a chance or give this slave a chance uh, by digging out the sociological and social se- settings. But um, it's um, it's an easy move by males to see, I think it was Raymond Brown, didn't he call these uh, holy irregularities or something like this? Um, but I, I think that it's an amazing act of God's redemptive grace uh, to include these women in these stories because they come out, you go, wow, that's pretty cool. Because I believe Matthew's setting up the mother of Jesus. And the, the, you know, the more you trash these women, the more you trash the mother of Jesus. Yeah. You know, I've I've th- I've thought be careful here because Matthew is clearly setting up for for Mary uh, by by including these women in the stories. And Lynn, you know, you've probably heard me say this, and I've written about it in a couple books. One of the things that the churches can do, churches can do, pastors can do, preachers can do, is tell stories about women. It is easy to tell stories about men because they have written the books and the stories are about them there's an increasing number of books that are bringing women to life in the history of the church that nobody knew about and i i see matthew doing that he's bringing these women into the story that probably for most people would just be told about the men and so i i i like i like all of a sudden this radical story. You know, I've told this story before, but I love it. I was, uh, I got a letter from a former student of mine, a male preacher, ordained pastor, whatever. And he, he writes me about the Jesus Creed book. And he says, I love the book. And I went, oh, I'm kind of surprised because I didn't think you would. But he said, except a chapter on Mary. And I said, and I thought to myself, I'm pretty proud of that chapter. I'd like to know what your problem is with it. And he said, I read that whole chapter and every one of the stories was about women and I couldn't relate to them. And Lynn, I had the greatest line ever. I said, I said, that's how the women feel in your sermons every Sunday morning. And he went, Oh, no, you don't mean that. I said, yeah. I said, how often do you tell stories about women? 
So I, I like that Matthew brings these stories of women in. It, we, we go back to the stories yeah. and to the complicated situations they were in, and they're a part of the heritage of Jesus. And that's, that's, that's where it's at. That's, that's the story we need to tell. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the fact that they are all Gentiles, you think, okay, and how does Matthew end his gospel? Go uh, into all the world, right? Preaching the yeah. gospel, making disciples. And, and so you have this bookend. This is a theological, it is important to know the story, but he's baking into Jesus's portrait that he's painting in the first chapter. He's, he's baking into that, this conviction that Jesus is for all. And we kind of think of that yeah. Luke doing that and because, you know, son of Adam, son of God. And so he makes it clear in that way. But Matthew, I feel, does that as well when he these genealogies are kind of a, a portrait of of Jesus. Uh, you know, he he is for all because he carries within him the blood of even the the arch enemy, the Canaanites of um, of of Israel. And you think, okay, in a couple of chapters, we're going to get into the Beatitudes: love your enemies, right? Pray for those yeah. who persecute you. Well, yeah, my great 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 grandma, uh, way back, I've got a couple of Canaanites. In, in there. So uh, Mary, though. And, Mary. and then he had, but he has, you know, he starts with Abraham, the uh -huh. son of David. That's very Jewish. Son of Abraham. This is um, in early Christianity, this anticipates the blessing to of all the Gentiles. So I think you're right. And he does uh, finish on that. Yeah. I, uh, I love Mary. And um, when I was teaching a course at North Park, many years ago. And I used to always uh, think that I had two minutes to get the students attention because the course began at 745 or eight o'clock and a college class of 80, 90 students at eight o'clock in the morning is not exactly live wires. So I figured I had two minutes to get their attention. And, um, and I, I started talking about Mary, and it just kind of exploded into a 45-minute 45, 45 rant about the significance of Mary. And, and I, I was amazed at uh, the connections that I was making. I, I feel like it was like a spiritual experience of making these connections to Mary. And it was a, a moment of discovery for me that, that lasted and it led me eventually to write a book on Mary, just because I fell in love with this character in the Gospels. You know, what kind of woman does the things that this Mary does? I mean, so, you know, we, we find her uh, in the birth stories in Luke chapter one um, and Luke chapter two. But I am so impressed with that song of Mary. Yes. She, I mean... What kind of, what kind of, let, let's just say, do you think she was a young woman, like 14, something like that? Oh, yeah, or 16. I mean, I, I don't know how, how young, but yeah. Okay, so she's young. Yep. And she sings this song that is both an incredible mosaic of Old Testament expressions and anticipations and prophetic yearnings in such a beautiful way. 
And at the same time, she is singing a song of resistance and dissidence against Herod the Great, who is a mean, you know, if I was Lutheran, I'd say something stronger uh, or Methodist, but because I'm Anglican, I have to behave myself. You have to work so, on your accent too. I, my accent. <laughs> so she is, um, she sings this amazing song that really announces the downfall of Herod and the uprising of her baby boy, and he's going to be the king. And she is pumped. And I'm sitting there thinking, she probably thinks she's going to be right next to him, whispering sweet directions in his ears. And the stories of Mary are like that. In Luke chapter 2, um, Jesus goes to the temple. They lose him. They, they, they go a whole day. I'm guessing they get down to the Jordan River at least. And then they have to come back, you know, and now they're steaming hot and irritated. And they find him in the temple. And it's Mary who barges in and says, you know, sort of, what are you doing to us? And he just asks a naive little question of a 12-year-old, you know, didn't you know I should be here? It's pretty profound. And the, one of the next episodes we get is this wedding in Cana. And Mary's just kind of irritated because they've run out of wine. And there's all kinds of explanations of why she thought something should be done about the wine. Maybe she's the host. Maybe not. And she pushes up to Jesus and says they've run out of wine, which is clearly a statement. Do something about it. I mean, after all, I was there when the angels announced that who you're going to be. And, and he basically pushes her aside a little bit puts her in her place and says, um, you know, uh, who do you think you are that you are to, to talk to me like this? And, and, and yet, then she, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, and in doing that, though, uh, he also elevates her as a disciple. And I think that that's where, because you're absolutely right, she was thinking, oh, I'll be the mother of the king, right? And so that will be my role. And he shifts it and says, no, you're going to be a disciple. Yes, that's right. Yes. And then she turns around. I mean, this is a pure discipleship. And this is, and I don't know if many people know this, but the Roman Catholics have brilliant expositions of John chapter two. But she turns around and she says, you do whatever he tells you. Yes. That's, that's a pretty strong statement. Then we find her, you know, uh, hauling her kids down to Capernaum, probably from Nazareth, two or three, four day uh, walk. And someone, she knocks on the door of Peter's house. I think it's that place on the, on the sea. And she, uh, and someone comes to Jesus, you know, your mother and your brother and your sister, they're all at the door. And he says, who's my mother? Who's my brothers? They're the ones who are sitting around here. And I think he's implying if, if she, if she wants to be that she can come and sit down with the rest of them. And they, she's eager to bring, are you talking about like Mark three, where she's eager yeah, to, Mark three. Bring, yeah. Yeah, to bring yeah. him, bring him home. She's really having questions about what Jesus is. Um, she can see this is going to be a train wreck. He's not <laughs> going to be the king the way that I thought. Yeah, you know? yeah. And uh, the thing I also love about Mary is she ponders stuff. Yes, yes, things happen and she's persevered. So she was there at the birth of, the, of Jesus, obviously, and she's there in Acts, the birth of the church. 
you know, and I don't know who else could say that, but she, she is through that all. Now I mentioned that she's a disciple and I know that someone, although I can't easily read questions and talk with you, but I did see that one person asked a question about how come there were just the 12 disciples who were uh, men? Why the 12 only male? And I, I'm so glad that question was asked and we raised the term um, disciple. Do you have thoughts on, on why the, it is the 12 men or how we, how we kind of process the 12 apostles and no women in that? Well, um, one thing I would say is um, we don't know enough to start saying that the only reason men were chosen is because Jesus believed in male headship. No, we don't. We don't, we don't know that sort of thing. So you have to start, start filling in the gaps. But the language of the Gospels includes a lot of women who are around Jesus. And yet there is this inner circle of males. And I think, I think that we are just going to get ourselves in trouble by trying to speculate about it. But um, I think the primary reason would be this would have been the norm um, of uh, leadership in that world. And that's, those are the people he chose. They were, some of them are, are connected to his family. But I'm, I'm really hesitant to fill in the gaps with um, anything that's, that broaches the top, breaches, broaches the topic of masculinism. So... Um, I, um, I'm, I'm persuaded also that, and I'm, I'm, I'll be really curious what Lynn thinks about this. One of the chapters about Mary, I mean, Lynn brings up uh, Acts chapter one, and I think she's ignored there. Uh, people don't notice that Mary was a part of that early Pentecostal community. And that Pentecostal community lived out the spirit and lived very clearly the vision that Mary begins to articulate in the Magnificat. So in some sense, with that giving and taking and sharing with one another in Acts chapter 2, at the end of Acts chapter 2, you have Mary maybe pondering, oh, so this is what it was going to look like when justice was served and the poor are going to be fed and the rich are going to be sent packing away empty. So I think that's uh, I think that's a passage that has to be looked at. But um, one of the passages that I think people ignore about Mary, in fact, one of the first things I do when I check commentaries on the book of Revelation is to see if they thought Mary is present in Revelation chapter 12. I want you to listen to this. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now that's, that, that's the language of prophets, et cetera, and, and even Greco-Roman stuff. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then we have uh, the angel, uh, the, the dragon. But in verse five, she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled in the wilderness. Now, if you don't, this is, uh, Lynn, I'm talking about Revelation 12 and Mary. I don't know where you are on this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the spot. But All right. I don't believe that you can read that text and not at least 
think of Mary as yep. this woman. Now, of course, this woman seems to morph from maybe it's Israel, maybe it's Mary, maybe it's the church, maybe it's the people of God, but it's pretty hard not to think that Mary is there. And there is an early Christian tradition that Mary was in Ephesus, where John is ministering and where Paul is ministering. Think about that. Ephesus, Paul, the Apostle John, and Mary, all maybe overlapping in ministry times. So I, I believe um, Revelation 12 touches on Mary, and I wonder what you think. Uh, Lynn, I, I mentioned this. I always check commentaries. The evangelicals, I know some evangelical commentaries who don't even consider it. It's like they've never heard that interpretation, I think. Oh, oh wow. People. Oh. Can you, and can you hear me okay? Yes, yes. Good. All right. Well, we, we have a huge storm coming through. I'm at work and uh, we lost power. So that's why oh. I suddenly just vanished. Yeah. Big thunderstorm. I was glad you weren't through. raptured. <laughs> yeah, that would that would create all kinds of problems. No, well, I, I do like that. I think Mary Mary uh, is is someone the early church valued. And you're right. We miss her in so many places. And I um, I don't know how if we finished uh, the question about um, disciple, but I think um, the one of the things that um, is so important to recall is the number 12 and the fact that they're Jewish. So the, um, that Jesus is, um, is restoring uh, or establishing or fulfilling uh, the righteousness in the temple and among God's people and so there's, I think, kind of acting out in this also is a representation of the 12 tribes, that perfectness of the people of God in choosing 12. I mean, Paul's an apostle, so he's number 13, but Jesus choosing these 12 Jewish men. And we tend to focus just on, well, they were men, but actually they, the 12 is an important number symbolically, and they're all Jews. So I think that it, Jesus is doing it is trying to symbolically establish his ministry. He's not making a gender statement. He's not saying I'm only picking men, right? It's just not where, where he's at. Would you say and so? Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and he's also uh, recapturing the vision of 12 tribes. And if this all starts on the far side of the Jordan, they enter back into the Jordan river with 12 disciples, apostles, who become, in a sense, the new 12 tribal leaders of the new Israel, of, of Israel restored around this symbol of 12. Ed Sanders uh, used to always say that the, the, the number 12 is historical, but I'm not so sure all the names are, are known. And that is getting at the same point. It's a symbolic number. Well, Lynn, uh, you've brought her up, Mary Magdalene, and you also brought up the Syrophoenician woman. I wonder if you could uh, bring these women out from the back rooms in Christian stories out into the piazza, the agora, so people can see who they are and learn yeah. from these women. Yeah, ab absolutely. I think um, so. 
Mary Magdalene, for example, she, um, she, we meet her in um, Luke chapter eight. And in Luke chapter eight, uh, we find that she has been healed. And so her healing, uh, we don't know from exactly what it is uh, that she was sick, but, but she is, uh, as it says, she's been cured of evil uh, spirits and diseases. Mary, and then uh, from whom seven demons came out. So that's who she is. Um, she's probably uh, someone who, like we might say, a entrepreneur has her, you know, has her own uh, business um, because she, she's known as uh, from Magdala, from that city, and uh, and so she, uh, that. That particular around that around Galilee, they there was a thriving fish salted fish mm -hmm. um, market uh, trade. So she probably uh, did that. She's an educated woman. What she is not is she's not the sinful woman in chapter seven of Luke. And what so often what so often happens today, and it started actually well. In, in the early church around 500 or so, uh, when Mary Magdalene was blended with the woman who we don't know her name in Luke, uh, Luke 7. This is the woman that anoints Jesus. She comes to Simon the Pharisee's house and she is the one Jesus says is someone we should follow uh, because she, she loves him much because uh, she knows she's been forgiven much. And because she anoints Jesus or she uh, cries and, and washes his feet with her tears. And so that by, by doing that, washing Jesus's feet, that act is combined uh, or connected with in Matthew and Mark and in John at the end of Jesus's ministry, before he goes into uh, Jerusalem for his final Passion Week, he is anointed by a woman with an alabaster jar. And it's put on his feet. And so what happened was these three stories, Mary Magdalene's introduction in Luke 8, the story of the sinful woman in Luke 7, and then the story of Jesus being anointed with uh, nard from the alabaster jar, all of that gets mushed together. And now suddenly Mary Magdalene is Mary, mother, the sister of Martha, who is uh, someone who anoints Jesus, but also has the sinful past. These seven demons cast out are demons of maybe a sexual nature. And she's the sinful woman in Luke seven. And I, I just don't buy that. I, I just that it, the details don't line up at all. They're not. Uh, yeah, they're not. Yeah, they don't. They don't line up. So wasn't it Pope Gregory who yes, first combined think, them all? But I mean, he creates a a trope mm -hmm, of, yep. out of out of evidence into something that in in our day we would look at it critically and say all he's done is confirmed. Uh, a chauvinistic or a male-centered perception of a woman that destroys right. the character of, of Mary Magdalene. 
Oh, exactly. I mean, yeah. in Luke seven, in Luke seven, we know the woman, she's heard Jesus before she's repented. She's honoring him in a way that Simon, the host did not. Um, whereas in the story of uh, Mary in John uh, chapter 12, or I think it's Matthew 26, um, uh, Mary is, can, well, She's named in John. Uh, she's not named in the in Mark and, and Matthew. But uh, the the woman there, Mary, is condemned for being wasteful. Never, there's never any talk about a sinful behavior at all. Um, the the woman who anoints Jesus, Mary, who anoints Jesus before his passion, is praised at, prophetically. She she recognizes Jesus's birth. She's prophetically honoring him. Whereas the woman in, in Luke is honoring Jesus in appreciation for uh, the gospel message reaching her. So there's just, it just doesn't, you know, it just doesn't line up. But again, that, that reduction move just restylizes Mary Magdalene to someone who has had a sinful past and, and you, by extension, you know, okay, most women at least have that, you know, potential of having a sinful past. So, you know, and, and Jesus can forgive you, but I mean, there's no, you don't look at any of those women and say, I would like to, if they're characterized that way, that I want to model my life after them. But see, that's just not at all what the biblical text says. The biblical that's text right. sets up Mary of Bethany as someone we should model. She's yeah. the only one. None of the other disciples yeah. really believe that Jesus is going to go on to the cross. But Mary does. And I wonder if it's in part because she's already buried somebody, her brother, and Jesus brought him to life. Now, not eternal life. I mean, he's Lazarus is going to taste death again um, in the human sense but but she she knows jesus in a way and then acts on faith on that and stands with him well i mean every follower of jesus should model their lives with that but you can't if you think well no actually she's that sinful woman back in in luke who is just in need of repentance and so you yeah. just wash away all of the prophetic action all of the faithful action and, you know, and then there's no, there's no discipleship to, to uh, follow with that. So, yeah. You know, that's, I, that, I think that people have done this to Mary, mother of Jesus, too. She's yeah. so pious and yeah. she's got this, you know, these sort of pinkish cheeks and in all the Roman Catholic art. And she's, her hands are folded and uh, Mary, uh, Mona Lisa smile at best, you know, yeah. and she becomes so abstract of let's say the cloistered isolated life that the the eyes of mary are not visible uh, a, a woman who had fire and who is is worthy of being followed i i believe she there's more about her other than jesus and god in the gospels and peter we know more about mary than anybody else and people are scared to death of talking about her and she is a, an amazing model of someone who had to grow up in her faith as Jesus grew up as the Messiah in that sense. And she's a perfect example of how most people come to faith. Well, how, what about uh, the Syrophoenician woman? 
Yeah, yeah. Or uh, with Matthew, that Canaanite. Canaanite one, uh, yeah. Canaanite story. Yep, yep. Well, you know, um, I would highly recommend, by the way, um, Amy Jill Levine's book that will be coming out, Hard Sayings. I think it's The Hard Words, or I think it's The Hard Words of Jesus. I, I'll have to look it up. It's not out yet. I saw a draft of it. And she does a, a brilliant job of unpacking, unpacking the story as she does with so many other, other stories. Um, but you know, you have this woman coming to Jesus, asking that her daughter be healed. And AJ mentions maybe at least in Matthew, the possibility is that her daughter is right there with her. With Mark, it's clear the daughter is at home. Um, and but Matthew may may want us in a way to kind of imagine the presence of the daughter in kind of a palpable sense that and uh, in at trying to emphasize how sincere and worried the mother is for for her daughter's life. And uh, you know, I, I would say a couple of things. Her, the the mother, this Canaanite woman going up to Jesus and asking him to heal is not disrespectful and it's not immodest. Women spoke publicly at this time and they could certainly uh, address a rabbi or someone who heals. So her public, she's not uh, acting in a shameful way when she speaks out like that. Um, the disciples may be pushing her away um, and saying to Jesus, you know, let's get rid of her. Or they may, depending on how you understand the Greek, they may, they may be saying, look, could you just heal her and let's get on our way. In either case, Jesus really takes this moment to think about and, and, to, and to really engage with this woman and her faith. Um, I think the fact that Jesus in, in Matthew, uh, Matthew talks about her as a Canaanite. There are no more Canaanites at, at that time. Um, in, in, it's, this is a language that Matthew pulls from ancient biblical times when the enemies were called Canaanites. She's from Syrophoenicia. That's what Mark uses. He's using the more up-to-date language. But in either case, she's a Gentile. And in that region, the Gentiles really had the upper hand and used it against the Jews. So when she asked Jesus for a favor, all the Jews that are with Jesus are going to be looking at him. Okay, that those are people that take bread from our kids' take mouths, you know, from our table with their oppressive rules and that sort of thing. So how are you going to respond, Jesus, when she asks this? And I think the woman herself recognizes that because she calls Jesus Lord. So she's recognizing the who her people are. And she's trying to say to uh, uh, to Jesus, "I recognize you are uh, you are Lord." And you know, we talked earlier today, uh, this evening, about Tamar and Rahab. Those are also Canaanites. So I think Matthew is also, in a way, kind of sliding in a reminder. Remember, the Jesus is actually related to her, <laughs> way way back. You know, um, the other thing is Jesus in in the storyline. Jesus has just gotten done teaching about. Uh, 
how, how one eats and that if your hands are not washed before you eat, that doesn't make you unclean. It's your thoughts that, that can make you unclean. It's evil thoughts that arise from the heart. And now he's faced with someone that the Jews would call unclean. So now what, you know, it's a perfect case study for his teaching. Um, and how will Jesus, how will Jesus respond? He does praise her faith. He gives an honor to her higher than he does anybody else um, with perhaps the exception of the centurion. But he, and these are two Gentiles. Uh, and so uh, it, it would cause the disciples and the other Jews around, I think, to pause when he, when he praises her faith. It's kind of like how the Good Samaritan story would have also been shocking. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I think Jesus's silence to her initially, and then his saying that he's just sent to the lost sheep of Israel, uh, is, is saying what people are expecting him to say. And there it, it's, he's, he is a leader and he's doing kind of the typical things of what people think leaders should do. Um, again, AJ brings up um, uh, Hadrian, who um, I think that it's Hadrian, who there's a story about him uh, that he's, he's approached by a woman with a request. And initially, you know, he, he's just going to stride on by. But, but she, she recognizes if you are emperor, then, then you would listen to me like that's, you're better than it. You, you should have a better character than anybody else. And he recognizes that. Uh, Trajan, same, same thing. There's a story about how he listens to a woman who begs for help. And, and that's a, a sign that that's, a, that's evidence that he really is emperor. He, he doesn't need to do this, but yet because he is so great, in fact, he does. And so I think that, that that Jesus initially is kind of responding the way people would would imagine he should. And so he he takes that opportunity then to respond the way that uh, that a true and good leader would, which is to uh, heal and to praise the woman for faith. And she continues to persist. So AJ again talks about how Jesus, models meekness which he had just talked about in um sermon on the mount and the woman models um you know appropriate humility not being a doormat but a perseverance also right that she she does not give up she pursues because she believes in in the lordship of jesus and knows what that character should be so uh, yeah, it's a, to me, it's it's such a powerful, it's an enigmatic story. It it causes us to slow down and think, wait, what's what's kind of going on here? I don't like it when people say she beat Jesus in a in an argument because I I just don't think that's that's the game. Matthew's not talking about a game here. He's talking about a, a real serious theological dis, uh, discussion as he probes this woman's faith and as she demonstrates. Her own convictions about who the Lord is. So, you know, those are my well, this, thoughts. Uh, uh, Lynn, you're bringing some of these women to life who uh, who are not 
very well known. I want to read the women's names in Romans 16. You know, there are, there are enough women mentioned here that anybody who thinks women were not a significant force in the churches or the church of Rome are, are making a big mistake. And these are women that Paul knows because of ministry. But here, here is Phoebe, a deacon of the church of King Crea. And she is someone who is a benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla, along with uh, her husband Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, they risked their lives for me. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. This is another Mary. You know, I, I read a stat one time that they thought about 50% of the women in the first century, the first daughter born would have been named Mary or Mary Amney. And in verse 7, we have greet Andronicus and the very well known and discussed Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Then in verse 12, we have two names, Tryphena and Tryphosa, uh, whose women, those women who work hard in the Lord, laboring in ministry, greet my dear friend, Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. And greet Rufus and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Notice all these women. And then we have Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas. These are all men. And their other brothers and sisters. So there's more women. I, I think there's at least 12 women mentioned. Then we have greet uh, Julia and Nereus and his sister. So we have at least 12 women mentioned in Romans 16, all of whom had ministry impact in the church, who influenced the Apostle Paul. Paul knows them, and he calls them by name. So, you know, I would say this, say their names. Yeah. Use their names. I remember a student, after I was lecturing a little bit on Phoebe, and um, and Junia, who came up to me after class, and she was really irritated. And she she said, I am so pissed. Oh, no. She says, How could I grow up in the church and never hear of these women in Romans 16? And I, I think that's sad. That's a sad male-centered commentary on the Bible that we only see the names of these men. Well. Lynn, can you bring Rhoda to life? Do you have anything you want to say anything about Rhoda? You know, I, I just speaking of people we don't hear much about women we don't hear much about. Um, you know, you, you've got Peter in jail and you've got a group of women. They're praying in Mary's house. Another Mary, right? Mother of John Mark. Yeah. And, um, and they're all praying and there's a knock at the door and Rhoda is sent to answer it. Uh, she's a servant. And. She's so surprised in, in a joyful way that she forgets to open the door. So Peter's still standing out there, but she runs back in and says, you know, they're, he's here, he's here, you know, and they're the, the prayers don't believe her. 
now, and I can kind of relate at times. I really pray something to the Lord, please make it happen. Please make it happen. You know? And then when it kind of is answered, I, I don't even see it sometimes. Anyway, I don't know what they were praying. They, well, we know they were praying for Peter's release, but when it actually happened, they didn't couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe it. And they couldn't believe it. Uh, in part because Rhoda was telling them. And that's a theme, unfortunately, that we do see through scripture is men and there'll be other there'll be women also in that room praying but that men just don't believe they don't believe uh what a woman says and so uh you know eventually she lets peter in and she's proven right but i i gosh my heart just warms to rhoda and to all those rhodas out there who are faithful and proclaim and no one listens. And mm. I think, but you know what? Uh, Luke recorded that story for us. And I think as a chastisement to important people <laughs> who don't want to listen to servants. I don't know exactly how she, we might understand her as a slave. I, I, there's a complicated social structure going on here, but she clearly is on the sort of lower rungs of the social ladder. We can at least say that. And uh, so she has that and she's a, a woman. And so her voice just isn't heard. And I, but we, we can make it heard. We can promote not only her story because she was correct in what she said and her demeanor, but then also make it a point to tell those stories of faithful women uh, down through the centuries. Because I think it's important that we get used to hearing these stories of how women are faithful and that we do careful historical work um, so that we can better understand the context of, of the ancient world, the historical context. Um, and that we're also, we stay really close to the biblical text so that if the biblical text says that that woman is righteous, that woman is more righteous than I am, a man, that that's what we lead with. That's, that's yeah. what shapes our, our exegesis and not our own um, either voyeuristic interpretations or our uh, just lazy interpretations that slip woman, women into just generic categories of mother, um, sexually immoral, daughter, you know, and, and that's about it. You know, Lynn, we, uh, uh, you and I, I'm older than you, but okay. But generally, our generation has seen the rise of women teachers. When I was a PhD student, uh, one of the women who really influenced me um, because I read her works, but she influenced me in the way that she utterly changed my mind and convinced me that something I was thinking was wrong. And she was right. It was Morna Hooker. Yeah. And um, then I remember meeting her. Uh, actually, I, the first academic paper I ever gave, she's the one who asked the first question. I was scared to death of what she might ask. She was very kind. Uh, a Methodist, and her husband was a Methodist. They were, uh, uh, he was a pastor, I think, at one time. But then uh, I met her in Cambridge, and I grew to 
to really like, I, I just couldn't wait for her next things to be written. They've always been very succinct, great commentary on Mark. But it makes me think of, I know we're running out of time here, of Priscilla, Prisca, and she's teaching Apollos. Yep, yep. And you know, I get, I, I look at you, I look at Beth, I look at Ingrid. Uh, you're teaching the Bible. You know, you're, 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 uh, you are successors of, of uh, Priscilla. So say a few things about Priscilla to close us down tonight. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, and I, I uh, uh, wrote about her, I think, I think it was in my uh, Women in the, uh, the World of the Earliest Christians. No, it must not have been. I can't remember where I wrote something about about her anyway there was somebody doing a uh, review and maybe it was the book at any rate it was a review and the person writing the review this the fellow who's writing the review uh gave me a chance to look at it before he uh sent it off which is very nice and as but one of the things he took me to task for was he said uh priscilla's not a teacher she helped uh aquila she wasn't doing and i i I literally at one point i thought Wow, have I? I went back to the Greek. I went back to I said, Wow, have I misread, misread this? All you know, wow, this is really serious. And I went back to the Greek and I thought, it, it doesn't say that she helped. It doesn't say that Aquila did the teaching and she was just kind of there to. She prayed check for footnotes. Him. Yeah, you know, it. She taught. She taught. Yeah. And and I they say, to, yeah, they taught. They taught together. She didn't help them. She wasn't secondary in that. Paul yeah. could have said that if he wanted to. There are words yeah. in Greek to convey that thought, but he didn't. And I think when you start there, when you start with Priscilla, when you start with Yodia and Syntyche from who are Paul's co-workers, Philippians 4, they're, they're leaders in the church. When you start with them, and then you read 1 Tim 2 which was written to the church in Ephesus, which would have known Priscilla, which would have known that Priscilla taught Apollos. And you just have to consider all of that to then exegete 1 Tim 2, where Paul insists in command form, let a woman learn. That's the command. And, you know, he doesn't want a woman to teach. I think what he's worried about with both the women and the men, because at the beginning of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, he's very critical of what the men are teaching. But to fix what the men are teaching takes one approach. But for these women, many of whom are Gentiles, many of whom have grown up in the cult of Artemis, and because pagan um, uh, religious practices don't have like a synagogue school, the way that the the Jewish uh, diaspora did, where every Sabbath the, the scripture was read and it was taught. And so both men and women learned. But in, in pagan, it, you didn't have any of that stuff. So Paul has to command uh, the church there to create an environment where the women are taught. And until they're taught, they shouldn't be teaching any more than those men in chapter one should be teaching. And Paul tells them they shouldn't be teaching. You know what I'm saying? Like he, he's, he does, it's both. Yeah. 
But we have to remember that Paul is saying this to a church that was founded by a woman who taught. And if you don't keep that all in your head, I think that's where things go off the rails when people try to interpret 1 Timothy 2. Yeah. Well, this has been a fantastic session, Lynn. I'm always glad to see you counter the trends and bring these women to life. And Lynn has two books on this. They're right behind me. Uh, Well, and you know what else is behind us? And I need to give this uh, plug for your Tove book because, and also to let people know October 22nd in person or online, uh, you, along with your daughter, Laura Berenger, did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah. yeah, Berenger, yeah. yeah. Uh, will be giving a um, conference, a one-day conference, Tove for Women. I am so excited that you guys are doing this. Um, we're going to talk about how we can create healthy, good Tove cultures where women can thrive. So we're going to have more ads. Uh, people can keep uh, looking at our Facebook, <coughs> pardon me, Facebook page, uh, the Center for Women in Leadership. Take a look at that. But yeah, so we get to do some toves together in uh, in a couple of weeks. Okay, that's very good. Thanks, Lynn. And uh, thank you all you uh, who came to watch us. Our numbers were way up. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, people sign up and then want to listen later, but everybody showed up tonight. And uh, hey, it's and really, we, didn't, we didn't even let a thunderstorm. I'm, I'm personally super proud of myself that I thought, let me try the phone because I have no internet right now in the office. So, oh. so now I'm on the phone, but I, I'm just really feeling super proud of myself that I actually thought, thought about this because most of the time I can't even use the TV remote. So I was, I was, uh, I was really getting starting to get thin on Revelation 12. And I kept thinking, <laughs> you got to show up here. <laughs> uh, Thanks so much. Thank everyone. Thanks. Thanks. Thank Bye-bye. You. Good night. Bye.